0: Hello, and welcome to On Consciousness with Bernard Bars. My name is David Edelman. I'm a neuroscientist, but I came to that particular uh profession through a weird sort of multifaceted trajectory. I started off actually as a human paleontologist. I got my PhD. In paleoanthropology, I studied the evolution of bipedal locomotion, of walking on two legs. And for some strange reason, I found myself some years later after my PhD in a postdoc uh, studying gene transcriptional regulation, after which I moved on to cellular neurobiology and curiously took this odd turn, which will kind of be part of the riff that we, we go off on today, which is consciousness, the nature of consciousness. And in fact, I met... Bernie Bars at the Neurosciences Institute sometime shortly before 2005. And Bernie and I started discussing the nature of consciousness and in particular consciousness in non-human animals. And from there I've been smitten and I've moved on and uh, I'm particularly interested in the nature of consciousness in non-human animals who can't communicate with us, at least verbally, behaviorally. We can argue that they're capable of doing just that. Uh, somehow I found myself uh, enamored of cephalopods, in particular, uh, the octopus. And the reason I got into octopuses was that I had asked myself a question, which was definitely inspired by my discussions with Bernie and with Anil Seth, now at the University of Sussex, about animal consciousness. And I wondered how far we could go. Who, who among all of the non-human animals was a member of the consciousness club, the sea club? And so... I started reading about these amazing animals, the cephalopods, and in particular octopuses, and I realized, wow, these are absolutely incredible animals behaviorally, and they actually have really, really big brains. And the most extraordinary thing to me initially at that point was the fact that the largest brain among invertebrates, the the, the brain that comes closest to the octopus brain in size is the brain of a honeybee, and that is one three hundredth the size of, of typical octopus brain, the common octopus brain, with 500 million neurons, about 300 million in the arms, and another 200 million between the eyes, and what we would think of as the head, but is really called the mantle. In any case, here I sit. Uh, I've become a devotee of the nature of consciousness, and that brings us to today. So I am joined by, of course, Bernie Bars and Jeffrey Krichmar who is a neuroscientist and roboticist who has been at UC Irvine for some years. And we, Jeff and I actually came to know each other from uh, our work at the Neurosciences Institute. So, Jeff, why don't you tell me
1: who you are, what you're about, and what you've been doing these past years. Sure. Thanks, David. And like you, I didn't come at this from a direct path uh, I started as a computer scientist, worked at companies, uh, Raytheon Corporation, IBM, doing uh, real-time and embedded systems. Uh, and then at some point I went back to school and got very interested in how the brain works and wanted to put these things together. And then uh, with that that background and that interest, uh, I ran across what was going on at the Neuroscience Institute in the late 90s, uh, and they were... Doing real-time embedded systems with these brain-based devices and having artificial brains uh, actually guiding or controlling or I don't know being <laughs> these, these devices. And I thought, How cool is that? So wasn't, super cool. wasn't a hard move to go from you know DC area to uh, La Jolla. Oh no, that's, <laughs> but. That's- uh, but yeah, it was it was fantastic. So I, I was there uh, about 10 years, and then uh, I started my own lab doing this very similar work uh, at UC Irvine around 2008. And uh, I've been there ever since, and we're still walking the walk, talking the talk.
0: Excellent. Wow, time flies. I know.
1: <laughs> so, yeah, you know, I, I
0: find, you know, Jeff, I find your trajectory, and I think Bernie would agree, particularly interesting because uh, as we had... Sort of discussed informally before. When you started doing all of this stuff, this is all really, really new. And this notion of um, essentially uh, putting biology, or putting biology, the, the the biology of the brain first and foremost in in neural modeling, and the idea of modeling in a machine, um, the the complexities, the details
1: of nervous systems and their function—that was really, really new when you started, wasn't it? It was. I, you know, we, we were about the only group out there doing this. Um, and I, I remember um, when I started going to conferences and talking about the work—that um, I would we would be the only ones doing that—but everyone was fascinated by it. And one of the things, because we were trying to build brains, and brains have lots of complexity, and they're they're big. <laughs> um, People were asking you why? Why are your artificial brains so big and complicated? I go because that's the real thing. Uh, <laughs> so it was this weird thing, and then you they come today, and they're they're all talking about you know these huge deep neural networks. So it's come full circle where they actually the rest of the field has now realized yeah to solve interesting problems you have to have uh, enough neural power and you have have enough complexity. All right. So Bertie, what do you think? Um, about this particular line of work, uh,
2: it's it's almost intimidating uh, how rapidly it's it's growing in, in the right direction. Uh, uh, when and whether it will get to conscious brains, I choose not to know about. Uh, but it's possible, uh, and uh, and and I should mention that the word consciousness. Uh, about the time when I got my PhD was taboo. You were not supposed to pronounce that word. And I think I may have lost my first job uh, because I mentioned the word consciousness too often. I wouldn't shut up. So, wow, what you're saying basically is that
0: if this had been, um, oh, I don't know, say 40 years ago, if Jeff and I had spouted this stuff, we would have been essentially burnt at the stake by Giord- like Giordano Bruno or something.
2: Yes, exactly. We That's a very good example, yeah. actually, because Bruno was violating the Vatican's uh, rules about whatever it was. Yeah. Uh, and uh, and so they decided to burn him and, and be done with all that uh, nonsense. Mm. Uh, so so uh, it was very effective uh, in in uh, warning everybody else to to shut up, right. including I think Copernicus. Yeah, uh, absolutely. Uh, because Copernicus, as I understand it, uh, actually never published the book that's attributed to him. Oh, that's interesting. He waited to die first. <laughs> well, that's one way to become famous. <laughs> oh, I mean, absolutely. With, without yes. all of the
0: detritus, right? Just well, get, get it out of the way. Yes, but, yeah. but yes. no royalties. No royalties. <laughs> no that's no the royalties. <laughs> but but you know, in any case, I mean, it's really really interesting, isn't it? How things have sort of turned. They haven't exactly turned on a dime, because again, we're talking about four or five decades worth of history and so now here we are and consciousness is not really taboo although i think if you sort of uh brandish that word at your at 50 of your typical neuroscientists their reaction might be a roll of the eyes yes. maybe. you know not necessarily because they don't believe it's there but they they might question well how do you study this thing how do you study, do you study this process actually right. i should say and and the rest of them would would be well you can't, guys can't even define it, so why are you wasting our time? And that is that is a big issue. And the one interesting thing, and I'll just put this four square in front of us mm-hmm. so that we can kind of unpack it as, as we go on explicitly or implicitly later, the idea that, um, you know, you need to start with this hard and fast definition, and that may well be true. Definitions are really useful in science, obviously. They're good because they set people down very specific paths, and perhaps you could argue you waste less time. but When it comes to consciousness, we do very much have observable correlates and properties we can see in animals that are conscious. And and you and I, Bernie, have talked about this. And I guess to some extent, Jeff, you and I may have talked about this before. But if you look at waking versus sleep states, particularly in particular deep, deep sleep, non-REM sleep, um, slow wave sleep involving delta waves, et cetera, et cetera. Well, you have two very, very sort of diametric opposed conditions in the brain, phases in the brain. And arguably, one is a phase in which conscious processing is going on and the other is a phase in which it disappears. And lo and behold, there are certain properties and correlates that are there when you're putatively aware and awake and they simply go away when you're in a deep, dreamless sleep or you're in a coma. That's really amazing. And that speaks to the fact that we're actually studying
1: a real process, I think. And we have something to build on. Yeah, except um, if you're talking about to a roboticist like myself, it gets tricky. Because how, how will I convince you that my robot is conscious, even if it had all those properties? I know you guys are conscious because I kind of can put myself in your shoes and, and, uh, and know that you're probably having the same feelings that I, that I, am, I am. But with a robot or a machine, it's, it's more difficult. Then it also begs the question, like, why would you make a, <laughs> a conscious machine? Uh, maybe to study it, but is there any benefit to having a conscious machine?
0: Right. So, so let me ask you this: um, just sort of, it's not exactly a devil's advocate position, but it's the it's the position of I'm putting my am putting myself in the position of a of a skeptic that you know might approach this and query you about it. So, vis-a-vis machines and the the idea potentially in engendering conscious processing in a machine. Um, Would you not say, I mean, to a skeptic's eye, would it not be sufficient to sort of offer that, oh, wow, we didn't program these particular things in, and yet you can see sort of these sort of functional equivalents of sort of waveforms or propagation events taking place in the simulated brain that mirabile dictu looked like the real deal, but we didn't program them in. But we were after simulating the same sorts of conditions that you might observe. You know, if you were studying a conscious animal, would that not be very, very potent sort of evidence for?
2: Yeah, possibility. Uh, you're, you're being very ambitious.
0: <laughs> of course, I am. <laughs> uh,
2: I'm, I'm, I'm much more cautious and step by step by step. I think people are conscious. I think you both are conscious. I think I'm conscious and so on. Uh, And I think we can prove that in a variety of ways. Uh, I wouldn't even dare to look at computers and wonder because computers don't have evolution, they don't have development, they don't have nervous systems. Uh, But we can simulate those things, so then... Is it the same thing? That's a open
1: question. Well, it's inverted, uh, yeah. My, yeah.
2: my objection to the simulation argument is that uh, simulating something is not creating it. And uh, that used to be a very clear distinction and it's becoming less and less clear as the computational world evolves into these very lifelike, uh, uh, very brain-like um, uh, systems networks yeah no and, it, and I that's agree. a yeah. tricky question right now but it used to be in the old days you used to say uh, you know the the map is not the territory right. right and we're working on the map and we're doing our best uh, and uh, don't step off the map and expect to survive well let me let me counter or at least
0: try to propose some sort of counter-arguments, right? Yeah. The first the 1st counter, it's not necessarily a cancer, but it sort of speaks to the, va- the real value of Jeff Jeff's work over well more than 20 years, which is that, speaking of increments, you mentioned increments and incremental. Um, in a certain sense, Jeff, ever since he arrived at the Neurosciences Institute, and in his mind's eye, probably before that, he's been taking sort of an incre- incremental approach to all of this, and he's been going through step-by-step, step, and essentially... Going after what I would argue are the multiple sine qua non of conscious processing. So in other words, memory, we talked about this before.
1: Mm. So
0: memory is important. Is, is, I would argue, and some people would agree with me. Others, perhaps like Christoph Koch, I don't know, might disagree with me. But memory, I believe, in some form or shape shape is 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 absolutely pivotal. To consciousness. You have to have some form of memory, and the definition of memory may be very Catholic in terms of the time point, the temporality of it, the idea that if you can hold a representation in your head together for 200 milliseconds, even just 200 milliseconds or a second, it effectively counts as memory as long as you can sort of act on that in some effective way. Or sure.
1: Way. Well, let me take a step back. So you made a point, like we've been going, you know, step by step from the Neuroscience Institute testing different things, and, and I kind of am... Not always comfortable using the c word, right? Uh, maybe the other c word, cognition. Um, but the the power that we've had is if we look at a memory system like you were talking about, and and we have been able to successfully build an artificial brain that shows characteristics of memory. Uh, the nice thing about it, from a science point of view, is uh, we built the the artificial brain, so we have access to every component of it. Yes. And so that's allowed us to really, in a way that neuroscientists and experimentalists cannot do, is just pick it apart and figure out why it's working like it does. And there's enough data out there that we can compare the emergent behavior of this artificial brain. Go, it is acting a little bit like Bernie said, it's acting a little bit like a real brain, yeah. but now we have access to more than a, a bench neuroscientist did. Absolutely. I think that's a really powerful tool. And maybe the better way of looking at this, maybe this is a powerful tool to look at the elements that lead to cognition and uh, I guess the other C-word, consciousness. Yeah. yeah.
0: So let me speak to the second
1: counter that I had mentioned that I had two counters to
0: your proposition that, you know, well, simulations are, are sort of they're they're kind of iffy territory. So my second counter relates to just this sort of thing. And the second counter is that well we're advancing pretty damn not necessarily rapidly but we're we're making real strides in terms of even in heart and hardware we're starting to emulate the organization of of even to the point of emulating individual neurons the way they look the way the way they would function behave actually you know sort of these these sort of gated sort of entities that, you know, they they have threshold gates. They they might be jazzed by something that that is essentially a simulation of serotonin versus dopamine. And they do all the things. We're headed very much, I do believe, and maybe I'm overly optimistic, I do believe we're headed to a point where we're getting pretty good at that. Now, the hardware in silico or in gallium arsenide or whatever you choose to to yeah. use as your substrate, we're getting to the point where you can make, you can look at the the actual entity on the, the silicon plate, and you can say, wow, structurally, God, you guys have made hey, this this is kind of starting to look like that you wish to emulate. And then functionally, right, you 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 know you're starting, we're starting to know as neuroscientists the rules of the game, right? We know an awful lot about neuroexcitation, excitation. About inhibition, we don't know the world about it, but we know an awful lot. We know about um, we know about uh, uh, essentially visual fields, how fields are defined, you know, in uh, in and across the, the nervous system for different different areas, areas of vision, um, areas of auditory areas, et cetera, et cetera. We're I think we're doing a pretty good job of starting to get that stuff into these what you might call at some point simulations. Yeah. But there's there's
1: actually there. hardware coming off. It's interesting you said that about the the computers. So uh, there's um there's people building hardware that realize that there's something called Moore's Law that we've hit the the wall against. We can't make our computers any faster. So they turned to the brain. And uh, and they were looking at building neural elements because it's one of the interesting things is how efficient brains are, how efficient biology is. So, coming from a completely different reason, we just have to make better computers that take less energy.
0: Exactly. Uh,
1: So, they actually made these, they're making these systems, some of the big manufacturers like IBM and Intel are making systems that have neurons, that have synapses, that run at extremely low power. Uh, and that can do more things than a current computer can. Right. So I hopped on that really early because I said, oh, this is the perfect embedded processor for an artificial brain, for a brain-based device. Right. Uh, so I've been following this and working with them closely, but it, it's kind of fascinating to me that they are not neuroscientists by any means, but they realized some of the things that brains do so efficiently that, that we should mimic. Yeah. And this
0: this is interesting because this goes back to a, a real important touchstone for me as somebody who fancies himself at least in my mind's eye, maybe I'm overly egotistical, I fancy myself an evolutionist, Died in the wool evolutionist. And as an evolutionist, I always consider various problems that animals solve in different ways, cognitively, physically, biomechanically. I I sort of reduce them in a certain way from the outside in. I start from the outside and I say, well, what happens when you see stuff? If you're starting from the eye and you're starting from the surface of the retina, you know, even before that, you know, you're dealing with the physics of light. You're dealing with some very, very hard and fast general principles of the physical world, right? And it should be no surprise to anybody that even engineers who are trying to you know, emulate nervous systems and what nervous systems do. They're hitting on some very sort of central kinds of points that evolutionists have always sort of thought about. This has been very important. And it's not an accident because the physical world allows only certain kinds of solutions. That is, if you're operating from the outside in. Now, that's really intriguing because I think that suggests there's a great deal of hope. I may be you know, uh, an over-the-top optimist about this. But Jeff pointed out something really, really interesting, which is the notion of energy use. And that goes back to something very, very basic in physics and and it has affected computer science for many years, which is the problem of heat and heat dissipation, you know, and the the efficiency of systems and how much, excuse the, the expression, how much light versus how much heat you produce, right? And heat has always been a huge issue. And as we miniaturized in microcircuitry, of course, it becomes a cardinal issue, and you see in supercomputers you see massive efforts made
1: to cool these. This is one of my pet projects. I've been talking to other people about this, just just how you uh, you know save energy with with uh, bio, looking at biological tricks, and there's many of them. It's not just the brain too; it's also the body. The body is doing all sorts of. Interesting, what we like to call morphological computation where it's exploiting the environment. So when we walk, we're exploiting gravity and friction. Uh, When uh, fish that swim really fast, uh, they actually are able to generate more thrust than they put out because they cause turbulence behind them. that gives them an extra boost of thrust. Insects do this. So there's all these tricks. And I think we're going to have to do this, especially with... I hate to say, climate change and also the way artificial intelligence and data science is going, that uh, we have these huge data farms. We have to do things much more efficiently. Yeah, so absolutely. I think turning to biology, brain and just basic biology is yeah. is definitely a key to that.
0: And, and channeling my inner optimist, and Bernie, you, you should you should sort of, you know, check me on this if I'm... If I'm going too far You're afield, way too optimistic. I, I'm always an optimist, you know. <laughs> oh, Bernie, when did you become such a pessimist? <laughs> I talk a tough game, but, you know, I'm a pushover. I'm a total optimist. Yeah. So, so here's the thing. My inner optimist tells me that, in effect, not to, to put too much conceit on this, but we're, we've gathered a lot of information as neuroscientists. We've got a lot of information about neurobiology under a belt. We're by no means... We've by no means arrived, right? But we've really got a lot of stuff. And the most heartening thing for me to hear when Jeff speaks about this is the fact that now they're really considering what turn out to be some very, very fundamental engineering problems to solve, which implies that I don't see the barriers anymore to really intelligent machines and putatively perhaps conscious machines in the future. I no longer see the barriers as necessarily be, in our way being neurobiological in in principle, right? Even though there are some. I see the major barriers in terms of miniaturization, miniaturization related to um, dissipating heat and, and energy efficiency, and the fact that brains run on such low energy, as you said. I mean, they're super efficient, and we don't have machines that rival that yet, but we're certainly on the path. But these are solvable. These are soluble, I think, over the long haul. So,
2: what do you think? So, I can make the opposite case. (laughs) Okay, (laughs) Uh, go for it. And and just for the hell of it. uh, One of the things that's astonishing, I think, about the human brain in particular, just because we know a lot about the human brain, and and there are comparable brains, of course, in size relative to the bodies, Uh, whales, uh, elephants and and you're telling me uh, the bees uh, are uh, well they have, have big ha- brains for their size they don't have
0: big brains in any absolute yeah, sense bees, but a million neurons is not, a million not, not neurons a million, they do amazing things yeah. Yeah. yeah absolutely yeah it's yeah. As my dad my late dad would say it's combinatorial it's one of his favorite words it is uh, what combinatorial combinatorial yeah, yes it just sort of explodes after a certain yes place. exactly yeah.
2: yeah. Um, And what baffles me about the human brain is how expensive it is and how risky it is and how it makes you know we've got this big brain right on top of our vertical bodies right and the moment we rise above the horizon you know walking up a hill uh you Know somebody's going to take aim at you and throw a rock in your yeah, where, where you live, <laughs> <laughs> rough part of town, right? Wow, I wouldn't yeah. want to live in your
0: neighborhood, wow! But <laughs> no, no, but you've you've just oh my gosh, you've just jazzed my inner paleoanthropologist, you've, ah, you've good. taken me back, you've unleashed the beast, yes. now I've got to respond. So, so here's the thing what's really intriguing is we have to be really careful when we when we sort of go back to that very, very distant, you know, misty time in which, you know, Australopithecines were these three-and-a-half-foot critters that were barely upright and doing an awful lot of climbing as well. But they were just trying to hold their own against leopards who would more often than not just simply seize them and, you know, eat them in a tree and let the bones drop into a a solution cavity deposit, which later became a cave. Well, back in them, their days, human culture or pre-human culture, such Mm -hmm. as it was, was not much to to look at not much to behold and my argument or my counterargument would be in fact mm. that all of the sort of soft not software but soft substrates that have evolved culturally have more than picked up the slack to buffer us against the very things you've talked about i would argue Mm-hmm. to you that there was a brief period you know I don't know how long it was necessarily unfortunately a lot of soft tissue doesn't easily you know fossilize and artifacts are beyond three and a half million years or so and some simple cobble stones which were just fractured mm-hmm. you know, by dropping them on the ground really? there's not much to, to go on but I think what we can say is there was probably this window it could have been a few hundred thousand years it could have been up to 800 to a million eight hundred thousand to a million years. Where, in fact, yes, you're absolutely right. We are fairly vulnerable, and there, but for the grace of dog, I, I'm I'm going to take an official agnostic position and and be that's dyslexic a, temporarily and say, there, but for the grace, a grace of dog. Yes, it is Joycean. Yes, <laughs> not quite stream of consciousness, but I'm getting there. Give me enough time. So my argument would be, we sort of dodged that bullet. Now it seems like an awful lot, a lot long Well, of course we ton.
2: dodge that bullet. Well, obviously we're, we're here. here. <laughs> yeah.
0: But but here's the thing that's that's not an unusual story in evolution. It's just sort of happenstance. And you could sort of argue that in effect, well, yeah, I mean, I'm not saying the universe favored us and shined its light down upon us and protected us, but we did somehow get through and there were a number of bottlenecks to go through, of course, you know, populations probably crashed and all that stuff. But the bottom line is culture starting, gosh, who knows when, but probably... Something shy of a million years ago, culture finally sort of picked up the slack. And we were, and keep in mind too, once we were bipedal, we were very migratory and migra- migrating very, very great distances—distances distances that are, were unheard of in other non-human animals at the time. So
2: one of the issues here is that you're picking your data, uh, and which is expe- expected that, and that happens uh, applauded, and <laughs> it's it's good. Uh, because if we don't start with the Australopithecines, but we start with Homo erectus and Homo habilis, which may be the same species for for all I know, uh, but you'd be the expert on that. Do you think it's the same species? No, they're
0: definitely genus Homo. They're, they're a breakthrough. There's a breakthrough, by, by at least Homo erectus. By Homo habilis, Homo habilis is... is... People have argued that it's essentially a very, very derived australopithecine. Mm. But Homo erectus is definitely, they're they're there.
2: They've arrived. Okay, so by Homo erectus, uh, I may be four feet tall, for example. Oh, you're almost, you're five feet. Five Five to five and a half feet tall. Uh, And uh, I'm trying to get out of the forest. Right. uh, Or at least I want to exploit the in-between area. and. And that is extremely dangerous because I'm good to eat. But now, for all kinds of predators.
0: Now yes. I'll speculate, but now, and and I don't have to really speculate too much because we have some amount of paleodemographic data on right. this. But now you're dealing with groups, social groups of a particular kind, and I would argue that sociality, but a particularly novel kind of sociality. Picked up the slack way before we had some hyper elaborated kinds of cultures to buffer us. So you've got people. I'm going to
2: exaggerate your point. Uh, People are nice to other people and they protect each other. And that's what saved us.
0: Yeah. Well? Well, not yes.
2: necessarily nice. I mean, <laughs> they're not necessarily ultra.
0: Maybe it's kind of you scratch my back, I'll scratch yours, or we're in oh, on sure. the we're in on the hunt. Sure. We're going to do this together. Sure. But by Homo erectus, certainly we were not simply scav We weren't simply scavenging, although we might have done that. You know, by happenstance, we may have done that opportunistically. We were hunting, and as soon as we're hunting, and we're obviously we seem to be hunting socially, and we have tools to actually butcher animals a certain way. We we're doing all this stuff. So arguably, there's some indirect evidence that we're that we've got each other's back. Yeah. So let's kind of move I, I think we've taken too much time in in, in the, no, in no, the no, distant no. past. Uh, this and, is
2: you know everybody right. listening to this is asking themselves if we're so nice and we're so cooperative uh, then how come we're so nasty? Well, because we're we're all
0: animals and nastiness now has a label but it didn't have a label before before we right, had language, right?
2: right. It, it, it had the label "I'm hungry." You look lying. good to eat, and yeah, so whatever. On. Yeah, yeah. Right. Well, I've just uh, read a book by Mircea uh, Eliade, uh which is a classic. I understand on the history of religion. It's called the History of Religion, but it's in fact uh, a an early history uh, of of human evolution, human biocultural
1: mm-hmm.
2: evolution, right? And mm-hmm. that covers a million years and more sure uh, and this particular view of humanity is is quite nasty it, it doesn't it doesn't try to be nasty oh, no. but it kind of reluctantly i wouldn't say know. you know i would say realistic because i'm not trying mm-hmm.
0: to to sort of put a, a a a nice sort of smiley face emoticon on all of this um this is not this is not totally self selfish altruism. This some people might argue this is group selection at work, whatever. I don't even care. I'm not even gonna wade into the debate about group selection. But the idea is there's a benefit to me, so I'm gonna act to do something for you right. or in favor right. of you to, to have your back. So sort of moving or segueing forward, um, and I'm trying to remember where we started, but but the bottom line is um I think. I I mean I think I'm 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 very, I would very not
1: call any of my robots nasty just for the record. <laughs> Fair enough.
2: You see, and that's a biological deficit from the viewpoint of it's a evolution. Just don't call turn it your or back. benefit. Don't turn your don't back. On.
1: Turn there's your back. there's a big red button on my robot. <laughs> <laughs> on off switches are absolutely critical, and there always will be. I might add. Yes. Yes. Now,
0: husband, if you if you if you interviewed husbands privately, they would say that of their wives. They would say, "Damn, why isn't there an on off switch?" Wives would say the same thing about hu- husbands. Depending on
1: this is an age old. Now you're really making me uncomfortable. Like, I know. <laughs> Let's
0: let's move move right along. So so I guess my argument, I I eat it. Bernie, you know, you got my number. I am and I'm a died in the wool optimist, but but I, I do think I do think that we are entering upon a, a point at which we can reasonably talk about um, intelligence, certainly intelligent artifacts, artifacts that issue forth, you know, uh, original, you might even argue, highly creative acts that are novel, that are idiosyncratic. They're not necessarily 100% predictable, which is kind of cool because that's a lot of what we observe in, in animal behavior, human behavior as well. So... I have a very, I sort of, I guess I have a rosy perspective, but I think it's a realistic perspective. I think we're on the right track, and I'm not sure whether this will come to fruition in my lifetime. But I I do very, I do very well see a path toward conscious artifacts, as my father, late father would call them, conscious artifacts.
1: Um, I think that there's a, there's a road. I can see the road. Yeah, he actually rode a road. <laughs> um it's, on my, it's, it's in my office on the bulletin board. Oh, uh, yeah, I went to a meeting sometime in the 2000s uh, and I sat in on a machine consciousness uh, workshop and it was just dreadful. <laughs> and, it was just, uh, and I came back and reported it and, and your dad, Gerald Littleman, um, we had to build a brain group. And uh, I said, here's what's going on in the world. And he he was kind of appalled, like, that's just not how to study consciousness, that's not consciousness. He goes, I'll tell you what a conscious artifact should have. And then I wrote it down. I wish I had dated it. I have the rough date. I wrote it down in my, my lab notebook and, and saved that one page. There were a bunch of steps, I won't go through them, that, that, that we need to take. Uh, we've done some of them, value systems, learning and memory, uh, going to kindergarten, so having some sort of learning and development. Uh, one of the hard ones I just don't know how to touch is is natural language. There there are systems yeah. right that are very good at language, but there's still a lot of issues, a lot of work. It's not natural. It doesn't have the feeling. Doesn't behind. It doesn't have the meaning behind the language. Right. Uh And and. To get a conscious artifact, you have to have some sort of report, and the best way to have the report is language. But, yeah, absolutely. But uh, but that sits on my wall. I, that's I, good. Um, every once in a while, I show it to people. Uh, but it was, and then uh, I had left, but they started the conscious artifact project nice. after I looked after I left, and uh, people like I think Jason Fleischer. Yes, that's right. And uh, and uh, Jeff McKinstry. Absolutely. We're, we're Eugene looking, Eugene, we're looking at mental rotation and how you um, uh, do things like that and, yeah. and building yeah. that. And so, you know, yeah. I think,
0: I mean, not to, not to make you blush, unfortunately, this is an audio podcast, so you don't have, actually have to watch that happen. But um, I think Dad would be really proud. He'd be proud of you. He'd be proud that you, that you have that up on your, on your whiteboard or whatever. Um, so let's bring this home. And I, I, I want to bring this home by asking you, Jeff, um, what do you think, give, give us a sense, you know, as briefly as you can, but, you know, don't hold back. Um, wh- how do you see the road ahead? What, what do you see happening? And what's, what's a kind of a rough timeline for all of this?
1: Uh, that's, that's a tough one. I mean, I think in the next five to ten years, you're going to see more and more intelligent systems. Uh, and I don't think they're going to go the road of, of making a conscious system, but they're they're going to be like, one-trick pony kind of things. And and people are looking at at biology and how the brain does it uh, because they they realize they've hit um, sort of an asymptote with this next wave of AI. So uh, when you talk to people on the street or at the agencies, they are starting to look back to the brain science and neuroscientists and ask them how do you do these things so we can get over certain things like transfer learning or catastrophic forgetting or mm-hmm. uh, or lifelong learning is a, a big uh, government project. Mm-hmm. So these things are going to come out, you'll see them in your smartphones I bet, in your maybe self-driving cars, a bunch of other things, uh, assistance. If you get out beyond that, I think like you talked about with the energy efficiency, uh, you're gonna see a lot more exploration, and we can't get to some of these places we want to explore. Um, with with humans, so you're gonna have to see a lot more intelligent systems that are really energy efficient. Right. That's gonna be happening probably in the next 20, 30 years. Cool. Yeah.
0: So, Bernie w- Bernie, w- what do you what do you see as uh, what do you see in the way of the future of all of this? Do you... What's your view of all of this? Do you see conscious artifacts in your lifetime? Do you see conscious artifacts at all
2: happening? At you know, all? I'm a skeptic on everything, including... Uh, I used to be a skeptic on biological consciousness outside of humans. Uh, and I'm no longer a skeptic, so I, I do have a capacity to learn. Um, I really don't know, and I actually feel rather worried when people essentially take uh, uh, very dumb systems, which has been going on for quite a long time, uh, and uh, started off the 1970s or 80s, I think, with a system called Parry, the Paranoid Patient. Uh, and you may remember uh, PARI, it was very trivial. It consisted of just a list of questions and answers mm-hmm and the argument from the psychiatrist who organized this was that paranoid patients when they get suspicious of the therapist really are very simple because they're they're so suspicious right you ask them a question how's your day and they wonder if you're trying to embarrass them or shame them or make them feel bad so so this was a, a trivial system that fooled medical students right. who had just learned uh, uh, about paranoid schizophrenia the week before and now they had a chance to uh, work on these computer terminals and right. interact with what they thought was a human being and they were they were snookered they were point. snookered yeah. and human beings right. uh you know we play with dolls as oh, children sure. but we you know we project uh, uh you know oh, we yeah. project human features onto the night sky. Oh sure. But you know, right? let me
1: let me um But you're talking about the you're talking about the Turing test basically, right? Yeah, it's in similar. similar way. Yeah, what is called the yeah. Turing test, and, but, and, which and is
2: not really yeah, but, you but, know... but
1: there are these chat bots and and uh that you see in this contest to to actually pass the Turing test and they haven't come close well uh, they sometimes, the they, sometimes yeah. they fool you but if you yeah. really probe them you but you know the thing about there's, it, I, there's no, nothing but, there yeah yes, i
0: guess no. i would say now fast forwarding to the present i don't think anybody would sort of i mean i don't think most people would sort of take this too seriously anymore they've moved beyond in a sense i mean the general public let me just you know be careful here because the general public is often taken in by these sorts of things. I think of Kismet. I think of MIT, the MIT Media Lab's efforts to sort of do what they might have referred to, some of them referred to explicitly as emulating emotional states and, and robots. And it was kind of cringeworthy. And so let's let's just sort of leave that aside because to be honest with you, I think that stuff is, if it hasn't eclipsed already, it's on its way. Let's just end on the idea of of what neural nets were neural networks were a very they were sort of the sophisticated end of something that you're talking about they were sort of they they use the phrase neural of course but back in the day they didn't really yeah. even halfway resemble real neural networks but now as as jeff intimated
1: well They're, yeah it's interesting it's an interesting time so you know, when i was in grad school uh, i studied neural networks uh and they were very small and simple mm-hmm. but uh if you look at the things that we call neural networks today, they're roughly the same thing. It's just there's there's two things that have happened. We have better computers so mm-hmm. they can have more and more layers and we have more data so that was the other thing. We right. need to train them. Um, but I think we're realizing that they're not acting or doing anything that's brain-like right. or cognitive-like or conscious-like. And right. there's another field which, which I moved into which... Uh, was, was based on neural Darwinism, which was you want a selectionist system, mm-hmm. you want the architecture the brain has, because the anatomy is so important. So you don't want these feed-forward networks. Right. And so we were building and we are still building um systems that have anatomy, that have uh yeah. that have the dynamics uh that that actually real brains do.
0: So not to put too much onus on Jeff, but to close, I would say um I would say that you're the you're kind of the great white hope in a certain sense or you and this this group and and also this community that, that we've discussed are are kind of the not necessarily the last best hope but the hope for you know moving into uh, a time when in fact we are doing simply something more than just trying to simulate that these things are behaving in the world they're acting in the world and we can even look at their nervous systems doing stuff that reminds us very much functionally of what's happening in real brains. And I think Jeff is on the right track. Jeff may be to some extent in the minority, but I think at this table, I think we can agree that um, the approach, the biologically based approach, perhaps mixed in with, you know, sort of intercalating itself into, or perhaps subsuming or or over overruling more traditional neural network-based approaches, that's that's my um, my. That's where my sense of hope comes comes from.
2: I think. Well, I, I share a lot of that, including the sense of surprise at how quickly things have gone, uh, and I keep on coming back to the same question, which I'm sure both of you also do, which is where do we introduce ethics and morality in this game? And, and I think
0: that's that's a really good question to end on. But I also think that that's a whole
1: other podcast. So I think we're gonna to have to leave that aside. Um, i and- will I will say something about that because I get asked that a lot of times when I talk to uh, general audiences and and I, I I'll give you my my answer is is as an engineer, uh, I want to work around safe things. so and I think most of my colleagues would. so so we put in all sorts of safety measures uh, so that that we know that these things will operate within bounds. Right. Uh, and I think, you're right there has to be a discussion because as these things get more complicated that uh you have to work harder to stay within those bounds but but as a community i think that's what we're trying to do i think for the most part everyone is 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 trying to be a good actor uh and so i'm not as worried about the the ethics immoral issue as some people are so let's let's leave it there
0: um Thanks so much, Jeff, for for being here today. Oh, my pleasure. It's been a lot of fun. Appreciate it. It was yeah. great to catch up with you. And as always, thanks very much, Bernie, for, for hosting us. We really appreciate it. Thank you. And that is it for this episode of On Consciousness. Good. I'm David Edelman with Jeff Pritchmore
1: and, of course, Bernie Bars.